Listen. Just listen. I'm Serendipity Theater Collective company member Sarah Karastis, and this is the Second Story Podcast. Second Story is Serendipity Theater Collective's hybrid performance series of stories, wine, and music. A collaboration among writers, actors, musicians, and others to create good stories and good times. These stories are written by the performers themselves, sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, always thought-provoking. And now, Second Story Storyteller, Ryan Blitstein. So, do you mind if I give you a massage while you wait? That's the first thing my roommate Kenny asks my friend Lisa after she walks into our apartment. No thanks, Lisa says, as if you asked her if she'd like a glass of water. Can I check my email? I'm toweling off in the bathroom. Lisa's picking me up for dinner and she's early. I'll soon learn my first lesson of living with Kenny. Never leave a female friend alone in a room with him. As Lisa grabs the desk chair, she gives Kenny a once-over. He's a North Shore Jew frat boy trying desperately to look like an advertising spread from GQ. Hairbrush forward with one of those thick product-filled spikes in the front, man tits bouncing beneath a too tight black sweater, a fat silver spring break Cancun pinky ring. When I think of the person I've always been most afraid of becoming, the potential version of myself I most loathe, the image in my head is so close to the way Kenny looks tonight, I'm nauseated. Lisa clicks through a handful of messages before she feels Kenny's pudgy palms on her shoulders. She can make a scene, bust out the no-means-no sort of rhetoric that's, that's intended for much riskier situations, or she can just wait until I open the door. She decides it'll be least awkward if she just assents. Kenny keeps on needing. Do you mind if I ask you? He begins in that sleazy Don Juan wannabe voice. How many men you've slept with? My ears perk up. All I can think is, what the fuck? In the room, silence. As Lisa will tell me later, this is the moment his fingers begin to crawl down her back. He's wearing the same Abercrombie and Fitch cologne as during high school in the same 15-year-old boy quantity. How many women, he begins, do you think I've been with? She says nothing. She's terrified his hands will graze one of her breasts. And on the other side of the door, I'm like jumping into my jeans and worried I'll slip on the bathroom tile. But part of me wants to dress slowly, methodically, because, you know, maybe like if I stay in the bathroom long enough, it'll all be over before I get out. Would it surprise you to learn I've had sex with 12 women? The number's worthy of neither bragging nor embarrassment. So there's really no sensible response other other than feeling like you're about to vomit, but Lisa has no time to react because I now enter the tiny living room with the exposed brick wall. Hey, he says, guiltily withdrawing to the kitchen. Hey, I'm too shocked, really, to say much of anything, so Lisa and I just leave. Everyone told me moving in with Kenny would be a mistake. High school classmates of ours, college buddies who met him once and thought he was a selfish prick, even my mom. She said he reminded her of Eddie Haskell from Leave it to Beaver. You know, that ass-kissy kid who all the parents love, even though he's a total shit when they're not looking. And I like to tell myself that I didn't listen to them just because I was afraid of going alone in the biggest city in America. And Kenny was the only person that I knew who was looking for a roommate. But when I'm more honest with myself, I, I think I admit that I was just excited that one of the popular kids from high school 
wanted to live with me. When you're 22, it, high school just doesn't seem like ancient history yet. You, you remember, right? Like, if you were a social outcast four or five years ago, no matter how much has changed, you still long to be embraced by you know, one of the guys who hosted parties with beer and loud music and pot and hookups with hot girls in the college-age sister's vacated bedroom. I didn't go to those parties. So I moved into Kenny's bachelor pad. I had almost no friends, so Kenny became my social life. I'd known him for a decade. When I was in California for college, he was one of a handful of people who kept in touch. And in New York that fall, we did everything together. We'd run in Central Park and shop for cheap milk at bodegas, and he'd take me to these shishi lounges with this kind of music playing where people drink martinis until 4 a.m., and he'd introduce me to pointy-toe shoe-wearing women who wanted to make out in the back of taxi cabs. <laughs> but as the weeks wore on, my friend's predictions came true. I, I discovered the real Kenny, the man who suffered from this dreadful personality flaw that made living with him unbearable. This gigantic rift between how he viewed himself and how others per perceived him. So in short, um, no one ever told him he was a fucking sleazeball. He lacked all respect for personal space, opening my bedroom door unannounced for a midnight bonding talk when a reasonable roommate would have assumed I was sleeping or, or, or masturbating. Uh, he had these narcissistic habits, like learning pseudo-intellectual words and speaking them aloud wherever he went. Vituperative, that, that's a good one, right? Right? Smiling like a toddler, pleased at having shit his pants. When Lisa recounts the sketchy massage episode over dinner, I'm not surprised. She says she's fascinated by him. What makes a reasonably intelligent young adult male think such ridiculous actions will get him laid? The answer, I respond, is that they work. <laughs> Kenny's 80s movie cheesiness had this strange appeal to women, especially those starved for affection or with daddy issues or very drunk. <laughs> he bedded gorgeous actresses and horse-faced attorneys and pearl-earring wasps and Jewish-American princesses. And on Sunday mornings, after he'd kick the girl out of bed, he'd jump around like a little puppy dog whose owner had just returned from vacation and describe his sexploits with phrases drawn from Maxim magazine, like who had the biggest, best titties, or how some half-Indian, half-Chinese girl had really fine pubic hair. During daily calls with his own mother, recounting the play-by-play -play of his life, he failed to censor much of this information. Kenny did possess a certain odd charisma, though, this ability to persuade people to crave his approval. No matter what he said or did, you wanted him to really like you. This crew of sycophants would orbit around him, including Pope, a flashy older guy who wore the kind of leather jacket that your dad would wear, and Jeff, an evangelical Christian do-gooder who spent all of his winters in Cuba. We all realized that Kenny was absurd, yet we, we felt compelled to play like minor parts in the fascinating novel that was his life. I redoubled my faith in him and defended him against all of his critics, including my own friends. When my buddy Jane said that he was kind of annoying, I, I countered that he had a good heart. When my own little brother said that Kenny was a robot leading an unexamined life, <laughs> I just said he was misunderstood. But it nagged at me. His Bill Clinton-esque quest for validation, asking unanswerable questions like, we're best friends, right? <laughs> right, aren't we? 
his pushiness for everything in the apartment to operate his way, his brand of Dijon mustard, his Swiffer instead of a broom, his French fucking cafe knockoff posters all over the walls. But by March, I was inventing plans with imaginary friends just for an excuse to leave the apartment, but he'd pepper me with questions, trying to trick me into divulging where I'd been, and I'd have to lie through my teeth. It, it was as if he knew I didn't like him, but for some reason wanted, wanted me to prove that I worshipped him. I had to move out, but I, I couldn't. Breaking the lease was for some reason tantamount to severing our friendship. I, I'd never broken up with a friend, and Kenny wasn't a bad person, really. Just a well-meaning buffoon who wanted everyone to like him and tried his hardest to make it so, but seldom failed to annoy, sketch out, or emotionally injure, no matter what he did. <laughs> when I thought, this is serious, folks, when, when I thought, when, when I thought of the words that I might use to explain that I didn't want to live with him anymore, my, my stomach would rumble, and, and he, I just knew he would be crushed, you know unable to understand how someone could know him without loving him unconditionally. I, I just couldn't do it. At the time, the, the friendship with Kenny was one of my longest, and I, I, I guess I just failed to understand that the length of a relationship and its emotional intensity aren't always linked. And, and, and worse, a, a friendship breakup with Kenny would confirm something I really dreaded to admit, that I'd been wrong about him, which meant I could be wrong about anybody. I moved downtown in June with three months left on the lease, replaced by a friend of Kenny's I didn't know too well. And I was really just doing them a favor, letting Todd sublet from me so he didn't have to look for an apartment and a job at the same time. At least that's what we told each other. We pretended to be friends and traded superficial emails and we would invite each other to our parties and click maybe on the Evite, but of course not really show up. Um, and then by late summer, Kenny and Todd owed me more than $3,000 in back rent and security deposit. Todd wouldn't call me back, of course. Kenny would promise to meet me somewhere and then flake, and I dreaded anything resembling conflict. But I had to face them down. So I step out of the steaming subway and head toward our old building, feeling like a loan shark. If this goes well, I'm thinking, maybe we can be friends again. Maybe I like him, just not enough to live with him. Kenny buzzes me in. The elevator still reeks of dead skunk, but the flat now looks exactly like Urban Outfitters complete with fake plants. Before even saying hello, Kenny just hands me the check, and, and I turn around to leave, but he, he says, hey, 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 wait, there's a, there's something I want you to hear. I plop down on the black and chrome futon, just desperate to believe that our relationship is anything other than entirely transactional, and he walks over to the answering machine, my answering machine, of course, and pushes play. Hi, Kenny, this is, this is Mark Blitzstein, Ryan's father. Embarrassment envelops me like a warm bath. <laughs> you better pay Ryan that fucking money, right? I'm gonna fucking sue you, asshole. I'm, I'm gonna come out to New York City. I'm gonna kick your fucking ass. Good day to you, sir. Slam! <laughs> so we all laugh, um, though it's clear I might die of shame. <laughs> and I leave the apartment and take the stairs down and reach the bottom and Suddenly, I'm ecstatic that my meddling, overprotective father has ended for me what I couldn't end myself. <laughs> I sometimes wonder if Kenny lies awake at night thinking about what happened between us and yearning for some kind of closure. He, he must. He friended me on Friendster and then later on Facebook, but when I messaged him, there was no response. 
I finally ran into him last year at our 10th high school reunion where the class distinctions and cliques of adolescents disappeared in a sea of alcohol. And predictably, he was wasted and told me how great it was to see me. And, and I told him that I moved back to Chicago for a girl. And he told me that he'd been engaged too in Chicago, but he didn't truly know the real her until after the engagement. And once he did, he broke it off. I considered asking him about an alternate version of the story. <laughs> One I'd heard third hand, in which Kenny's parents and his ex-fiance's parents argued intensely over the wedding planning, particularly how much money would be spent as Kenny's father, a local suburban politician, needed a fancy affair to impress his cronies. The fights boiled over to bride and groom, and eventually they canceled the wedding over it. It seemed like an allegory for everything that makes me embarrassed to be a Jew from the North Shore. And I just really wanted to know if it was true. But... I peered behind Kenny's drunken eyes and saw that he'd been hurt by his ex-fiance and so many others who'd exited his life for reasons he could never fathom. So I just said, I, I gotta get another drink, and I headed for the bar. Hi. That was Ryan Blitstein. If his story gives you an idea for your own second story, we'd love to hear them. Please join us for our ongoing series at Webster's Wine Bar and Red Kiva, or one of our upcoming special events. This October, we're at Straw Dog Theater on the 23rd and Victory Gardens on the 25th. Second Story Podcast is brought to you by Amanda Delheimer, Megan Steelstra, Shannon Sullivan, Miles Pulaski, Mikhail Fixel, and Nick Kawahara. I am Sarah Karastas. Serendipity is funded in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Illinois Art Council Estate Agency, the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, City Arts Grants, the Chicago Community Foundation, a part of the Chicago Community Trust, and listeners just like you. To find out more about Second Story, the performances, and our performers, or to make a donation, visit us at storiesandwine.com. Hey,